Episode 94. At 6 a.m., the world smells like celery and onions, while sun shines through fire-colored leaves. Greetings and welcome in to the Patuxent General. I am your host, Jess. After a week of cooking, shopping, wrapping, and eating, I bring you a nice long reading of Edgar Allan Poe's The Murders in the Rue Morgue to relax to, a refreshing Cape Cotter to round out your cranberry intake for this week, and one of my home recipes for Chicken Luigi. But first, I must thank our Patreon subscribers. These Friendsgiving festive folk bring the oven green bean casserole, mashed potatoes, fresh bread, stuffing, cranberry sauce, gravy, pumpkin or apple pie, and mashed carrot and turnip to the Thanksgiving table that is the Patuxent General, without whom we would be a raw naked turkey. So thank you! If you would like to be one of the folk that I'm thankful for, simply follow the link in the show notes or look for our page on patreon.com. So thank you. But until then, let's have a Cape Cotter. Here's one of the easiest cocktail recipes you can make, a vodka cranberry, also known as a Cape Cotter. It has only a handful of ingredients and tastes tart and refreshing. Even better, it goes down easy. The flavor is nicely balanced so that the alcohol is not too strong. Fun fact, believe it or not, this classic drink was invented in the 1940s by Ocean Spray itself. For this cocktail, you will need two and a half ounces vodka, three ounces cranberry juice, a squeeze of lime, and an ice-filled glass. Pour ingredients over ice into a tall glass and garnish with a slice of lime. Mm-mm-mm. Enjoy. Years ago, while my kids were little, I took a chance at Whole Foods with a pre-made dinner. This is not usually my way, but sometimes with small ones, needs must. This particular one was linguine with breaded chicken and sauce with cheese on top. Well, to say it was a hit was an understatement. Every bite was eaten. I felt good about spending the extra cash. But the next time we were shopping, my youngest said, Can we have Chicken Luigi again? When I stopped giggling, I said yes, but I would make it myself. Last night, I made Chicken Luigi. So I thought I would share this recipe, which disappeared just as quickly, with you. It has three parts, the chicken, the sauce, and the pasta. Make your linguine any way you like it, but the higher quality pasta that you use, the better it tastes. I had a dry box of pasta last night, and it was lovely. This past weekend at the Edgewood Congregational Church, they had their annual holiday bazaar, and I was there making my famous pizza strips, which you can check out in episode 60. But I had a bunch of leftover sauce, so I took a jar home. The best part is that I had a couple of baguettes left over from the table and two double boneless chicken breasts in the fridge. I knew just what this meant. Chicken Luigi. For the sauce, you will need... Two large cans of crushed tomatoes. Tomato magic is preferable, but any good crushed tomato will do in a pinch. Four cloves of garlic. Two teaspoons cracked red pepper. Two teaspoons salt. Two teaspoons black pepper. One tablespoon Italian seasoning. Two tablespoons sugar. One half cup olive oil. And one half cup Romano cheese. I mix all this together cold. This is a fresh sauce and goes right into the refrigerator until ready for use. For the next part, I cut the double boneless chicken breasts into four equal pieces each. I lightly season them with salt, pepper, and granulated garlic. Then I put those back in the cooler, 
while I prepped the breadcrumbs. I took three slices of stale whole wheat sourdough and a fresh baguette from the day before, and ripped them into chunks, then pulsed them in the Cuisinart until they were small crumbs. I put those in a bowl and added salt, pepper, a tablespoon of Italian seasoning, two tablespoons Parmesan cheese, one teaspoon poultry seasoning, and mixed them up. Then I took an egg, beat it, and ran the chicken through it, then patted the breadcrumb mixture all around and put on a sheet covered with parchment paper. Do this with all the pieces. I then put them into a 350-degree preheated oven for 10 minutes. At that point, I took the sauce from the fridge and put on about two tablespoons on top and a little Parmesan, then stuck it back into the 350-degree oven for 10 more minutes until they were lightly brown and the cheese melted with an internal temperature of 165. I served these over hot pasta with just a little bit of sauce mixed in. The beauty of the sauce shines through if only cooked once. As you reheat, it will become more acidic as well as spicier. To your taste, enjoy. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball and pinball and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. And now to pick up where we left off, The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. Residing in Paris during the spring and part of the summer of 1800, I there became acquainted with a Monsieur C. Auguste Dupin. This young gentleman was of an excellent, indeed, of an illustrious family, but, by a variety of untoward events, had been reduced to such poverty that the energy of his character succumbed beneath it, and he ceased to bestir himself in the world or to care for the retrieval of his fortunes. By courtesy of his creditors, there still remained in his possession a small remnant of his patronomy, and upon the income arising from this he managed, by means of rigorous economy, to procure the necessities of life without troubling himself about its superfluities. Books, indeed, were some of his sole luxuries, and in Paris these were easily obtained. Our first meeting was at an obscure library in the Rue Montmartre, with the accident of our both being in search of the same very rare and very remarkable volume brought us into closer communion. We saw each other again and again. I was deeply interested in the little family history which he detailed me with all the candor which a Frenchman indulges whenever mere self is his theme. I was astonished, too, at the vast extent of his reading and above all his imagination. Seeking in Paris the objects I then sought, I felt that the society of such a man would be to me a treasure beyond price, and this feeling I frankly confided in him. It was at length arranged that we should live together during my stay in the city, and as my worldly circumstances were somewhat less embarrassed than his own, 
I was permitted to be at the expense of renting and furnishing in a style which suited the rather fantastic gloom of our common temper, a time-eaten and grotesque mansion, long deserted through superstitions into which we did not inquire, and tottering to its fall into a retired and desolate portion of the Faubourg St. Germain. Had the routine of our life at this place been known to the world, we should have been regarded as madmen, although perhaps as madmen of a harmless nature. Our seclusion was perfect. We admitted no visitors. Indeed, the locality of our retirement had been carefully kept a secret from my own former associates, and it had been many years since Dupin had ceased to know or be known in Paris. We existed within ourselves alone." It was a freak of fancy in my friend, for what else shall I call it, to be enamoured by the night for her own sake, and into this bizarrerie, as into all his others I quietly fell, giving myself up to his wild whims with a perfect abandon. The sable divinity would not herself dwell with us always, but we would counterfeit her presence." At the first dawn of the morning we closed all the messy shutters of our old building, lighting a couple of tapers which, strongly perfumed, threw out only the ghastliest and feeblest of rays. By the aid of these we busied our souls in dreams, reading, writing, or conversing, until warned by the clock of the advent of the true darkness. Then we sailed forth into the streets, arm in arm, continuing the topics of the day, or roaming far and wide until a late hour seeking amid the wild lights and shadows of the populous city that infinitely of mental excitement which quiet observation can afford at such times i could not help remarking and admiring although from his rich ideality i had been prepared to expect it a peculiar analytic ability in dupin he seemed too to take an eager delight in its exercise if not exactly in its display and did not hesitate to confess the pleasure thus derived he boasted to me in a low chuckling laugh that most men in respect to himself were windows in their bosoms and wont to follow up such assertions by direct and very startling proofs of his intimate knowledge of my own his manner at these moments was frigid and abstract, his eyes were vacant in expression, while his voice, usually a rich tenor, rose into a treble that would have sounded petulantly, but for the deliberateness and entire directness of the enunciation. Observing them in these moods, I often dwelt meditatively on the old philosophy of the bipart soul, and amused myself with the fancy of the double Dupin, the creative and the resolvent. Let it not be supposed, from what I have just said, that I am detailing any mystery or penning any romance. What I have described in The Frenchman was merely the result of an excited or perhaps diseased intelligence. But of the character of remarks at the period in question, an example will best convey the idea. We were strolling one night down a long dirty street in the vicinity of Paris Royal, being both apparently occupied with thought, neither of us had spoken a syllable for fifteen minutes at least. All at once, Dupin broke forth with these words. He is a very little fellow, that is true, and would do better for the Theatre de Veritas. There can be no doubt of that, I replied unwittingly, and not at first observing, 
So much as I had been absorbed in reflection, the extraordinary manner in which the speaker had chimed in on my meditation. In an instant afterward, I recollected myself, and my astonishment was profound. Dupin, I said gravely, this is beyond my comprehension. I do not hesitate to say that I am amazed, and can scarcely credit my senses. How is it possible that you should know that I was thinking of— here I paused to ascertain beyond a doubt whether he really knew of whom I thought. Of Chantilly, he said. Why do you pause? You are marking to yourself that his diminutive figure unfitted him for tragedy. For this was precisely what had formed the subject of my reflections. Chantilly was a quondam cobbler of the Rue St. Denis, and who, becoming stage-mad, had attempted the role of Xerxes, and had been notoriously hasquinated for his pains. "'Tell me, for heaven's sake!' I exclaimed. "'The method, if method there is, by which you have enabled to fathom my soul in this matter.' "'It was the fruitier,' replied my friend, who brought you to the conclusion that the mender of souls was not sufficient height for Xerxes.' "'The fruitier! You astonish me! I know no fruitier whatsoever! The man who ran up against you as we entered the street! It must have been fifteen minutes ago!' I now remembered that, in fact, a fruitier, carrying upon his head a large basket of apples, had nearly thrown me down by accident as we passed the rue, through the thoroughfare which we stood, but what this had to do with Chantilly I could not possibly understand. "'There is not a particle of charlatanery about Dupin.' I will explain, he said, and that you may comprehend all clearly, we will first retrace the course of your meditation, from the moment in which I spoke to you, until that the recontra with the fruity are in question. The larger links in the chain run thus, Chantilly, Orion, Dr. Nicholas, Epicurus, Stereotonomy, the Street Stones, the Fruitier. There are few persons who have not, at some period in their lives, amused themselves in retracing the steps by which particular conclusions of their own minds have been attained. The occupation is often full of interest, and he who attempts it for the first time is astonished by the apparently illimitable distance and incoherence between the starting point and the goal. What, then, must have been my amazement when I heard the Frenchman speak what he had just spoken, and when I could not help acknowledging that he had just spoken the truth, he continued. We had been talking on horses, if I remember aright, just before leaving the Rue C. This was the last subject we discussed. As we crossed into the street, a fruitier, with a large basket upon his head, brushing quickly past us, thrust upon you a pile of paving-stones collected at a spot— where the causeway was going under repair. You stepped upon one of the loose fragments, slipped, slightly straining your ankle, appearing vexed or sulky, muttered a few words, turned to look at the pile, and then proceeded in silence. I was not particularly attentive to what you did, but observation had become, with me, of late, a species of necessity. You kept your eyes upon the ground, glancing with a petulant expression at the holes and ruts in the pavement. So I saw that you were still thinking of the stones, until we reached the little alley called La Martine, which had been paved, by way of experiment, with the overlapping and riveted blocks. Here your countenance brightened up, and perceiving your lips move, I could not doubt that you murmured the word stereotomy, a term very affectedly applied to this species of pavement. I knew that you could not say to yourself, stereotomy, without being brought to think of atomies, and thus of the theories of Epicurus. 
And since, when we discussed the subject not very long ago, I mentioned to you how singularly, yet with how little notice, the vague guesses of that noble Greek had met with the confirmation in the late nebular cosmogony, I felt that you could not avoid casting your eyes upward to the great nebula of Orion, and I certainly expected you would not do so. You did look up, and now assured I had correctly followed your steps." But in that bitter tirade upon Chantilly, which appeared in yesterday's satirist, making some disgraceful allusions to the cobbler's change of name upon assuming the buskin, quoted a Latin line which we have often conversed. I mean the line, Perdidit antiquum litera sononum. I had told you that this was in reference to Orion, formerly written Urion and from certain pungencies connected with this explanation, I was aware that you had not forgotten it. It was clear, therefore, that you could not fail to combine the two ideas of Orion and Chantilly. That you did combine them, I saw by the character of the smile which passed over your lips. You thought of the poor cobbler's immolation. So far you had been stooping in your gait, but now I saw you draw yourself up to your full height, and I was sure that you had reflected upon the diminutive figure of Chantilly. At this point I interrupted your meditations to remark that as, in fact, he was a very little fellow, that Chantilly would do better at the Theatre de Veritas. Thank you once again for joining us today at the Patuxent General. If you would like to reach out with a recipe, comment, question, or local ghost story, our email is jess at patuxentgeneral.com. Please reach out. We can't wait to hear from you, and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. But until then, I'll meet you right back here next time at the Patuxent General. Something for Posterity Production, pre-recorded in Patuxent. <laughs>